I look at it from God's perspective, that he doesn't have to aggregate, then I realized, gosh, when I have my interview with him, he's not going to say, oh my gosh, Professor Clayton Christensen, Harvard. That's not going to come up in the conversation. He's just going to say, all right, I let you be in that situation for about 25 years. Let's just talk about the individual people who you helped to become better people um, by the talents that I gave you. And then uh, I stuck you there for about 10 years. So let's talk about the individual people who you helped to become better people. And uh, to, against my better judgment, I gave you five children. Can we talk about, did you help them become great people, you know? And uh, I, when I realized that the way God will measure my life is by the individual people who I help to become better people. As always, I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate. Next Estate are specialists in buying, selling, and managing property in the Berlin market in Germany. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.de or next-estate.com. Absolutely delighted to welcome back for part two of this wonderful episode. How will you measure your life with the co-author of that brilliant book, that life-changing book, Karen Dillon. Welcome back. Thank you, Aidan. I'm still so glad to be here. It's great to have you back. We've had a little bit of a weekend to let the content marinate over the weekend. I certainly have anyway. And one of the things I thought we'd share, because I, I was mentioning to you off air, it was a context changer for me knowing this was the, the context in which you wrote the book, because Clay had just suffered a stroke. And perhaps you'll tell our audience about this, because it was certainly a different experience for you, and one which brought the three of you together as co-authors. So yes, it was a profoundly different experience. Um, Clay's health played a big role in how we worked together. But what happened was, when he was first asked to speak to that graduating class, he was in remission, but still had had a had a tough haul um, from about a cancer, and I, I think he was actually bald when he from chemo when he was on stage speaking to the class. And I think people just found it so powerful for some for him to be sharing what he thought mattered most, knowing that he had faced his own mortality. Uh, luckily, he was in remission, but it was still a really profoundly moving moment, and that to me added extra urgency to writing the article that we wrote together for Harvard Business Review, which is the original way that we worked on this together. So we, we worked on the article together, and then it came out in our July-August issue of that year. And Clay had a stroke probably, I can't remember, a few days, within the first week or two of July. So he went from fighting cancer and being in remission and, again, having that, um, that brush with his mortality to having another huge health challenge. And the particular kind of stroke that he had affected his ability to speak and his ability to write. His brain was perfect. Otherwise, he was physically able to move around. Everything about him was fine, except for he had difficulty expressing his thoughts, even though the thoughts were perfectly clear in his mind. It, to me, it... It was almost a call. Like I knew that he and I had worked together so well on that uh, Measure Your Life article. I felt like I could and, and, and needed to help him express himself. So working together with him um, while he was recovering from a stroke it made it more urgent. It made it more challenging. And it made it more important, I think, to do because I was helping. And James, my co-author, we were helping 
the thoughts that were having difficulty getting out, get out into, into the book. And the, the importance of doing that just was not lost on me. I just felt like it was, I had to do it. Yeah, what a special time as well. I'm sure it was uh, frustrating at times for everybody and particularly for Clay as well, trying to get out his thoughts, which he did so well as a lecturer. I highly recommend anybody who hasn't experienced the work of Clayton Christensen, check out YouTube. It's full of magnificent talks, including talks after he'd had the stroke as well, where he talks to the audience about the fact that he's searching for words, etc. So let's let's move back into the book because we're getting into part two. And part two, Karen, as you know, opens up with the idea of throwing good money after bad. Maybe you'll set some context for this from a business perspective. And then we'll look at, well, what does that mean from a personal perspective? So from a business perspective, it's kind of common sense when you're outside of the moment. But when you're in the moment, it is really hard sometimes to see. It's it's the idea that once you've invested a certain amount uh, in something, a project, an initiative, um, a new company, it feels really hard to change course, to shift your priorities because you you've absolutely, you know, you you spent money and energy and time to get this thing as far as it as it has gone and. It's very, very difficult to stop doing that, even though you know it's the wrong investment of resources in some in some way. So companies do it all the time. They 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 spend too much. They end up having to write something off because at no point could they stop and pause and say it's actually better. The better decision here is to cut the losses and use this our money and resources for something else. Um, and it's something that we do as human beings as well too. It's so hard to change course. You just think a little bit more, I'll invest a little bit more, um, I'll keep focusing on this thing, it will finally pay off. And then you're just, you're losing more and more. It's like a, I liken it to, to a, a gambler, you know, you're still trying to kind of lucky seven one more time, I'll get it the next time. And you, you can't walk away from, uh, from what you've already lost, because that feels too painful. So that's the simple, the idea at its simplest is that you invest in the wrong things for too long, and you know it, and you don't stop yourself to change. And this goes for relationships, it goes for people who have become known for something in their career, like you, like you, you were a perfect example of this, you were known as the, you had this brilliant pedestal job in the HBO or being the editor, which was so sought after as a role, and then you turn away from that, which is so difficult for people. It, it was difficult for people to understand that I, why I would do it because it was the thing I had invested, you know, in my career to getting to that point. And I finally had the thing. I finally had the payoff of being the editor. I, I had loved all my jobs along the way. It wasn't so sole focused for me, but it was a job that I knew I was very proud to have. And it was a job that the world saw as very prestigious. Um, and for many people, it would, it would be hard to imagine what could cause you to walk away from that. You've invested all of this in this. Why would you not reap all the benefits of it? Um, but luckily, really because of Clay, truly because of Clay, I was able to rethink where my own personal resources were going and what my own personal investment was. And was it so important to keep on that one investment or did I need to recalibrate? Loss aversion is a human is a human problem. We're all so afraid of losing what we have that we sometimes are, we hold on to what's not right rather than taking the chance to go to something that we know we should have. It's a Nobel Prize winning theory from Daniel Kahneman that loss aversion is more powerful. The fear of losing is more powerful than than the understanding or, or the desire to have something better. Um, so it, it, it comes into play in our human relationships. It comes into play in our jobs and our career choices. It's a business theory, 
but it works in our lives as well. Let's move on to the idea of extreme empathy. And this is correlated to work you did as well. You were co-author in competing against Look with Tally Hall and Clayton Christensen as well. And in there, you talk about the jobs to be done theory. Bob Mesta is in that book as well. I have his his new book here as well. Bob's going to join us in this series as well to cover that book, his whole idea of learning to build and understanding jobs to be done theory. But I loved the way this was applied to understanding your partner and what's your job to be done as a spouse, as a partner, as a parent, whatever it might be on a life level. And I thought I'd tee you up here with a quote. You said, many products fail because companies develop them from the wrong perspective. Companies focus too much on what they want to sell to their customers rather than what those customers really need. What's missing is empathy, a deep understanding of what problems customers are trying to solve. The same is true in our relationships. We go into them thinking about what we want rather than what is important to the other person. Changing our perspective is a powerful way to deepen our relationship. This sets us up beautifully, Karen, as you know, for jobs to be done theory. So the jobs to be done theory is a really simple, but I think revelatory way of looking at uh, how other people see us or want us in some way in, in business, our product or service, or as in our human relationships to be to be part of their lives. And the theory came from Clay was working with Bob Nesta, who I know will be on your show on another episode, um, uh, to try to solve a, a sort of challenging problem that Bob was working on in his consulting work, which was he had been hired to, by a fast food chain um, to try to figure out why it was that they were selling one particular store was selling a lot of milkshakes in the morning and milkshakes in the morning. You know, maybe some people like to do that, go into a fast food chain and get it, but it's pretty unusual. Most people don't get milkshakes. They get orange juice or coffee or whatever. And so Bob was monitoring the people coming and going and they were trying to figure out what do these people have in common? What's the common demographic of the people who are coming to, to get, because that's how companies think about products, right? What's our demographic? Um, you know, is it a certain age? Is it all men? Is it women? Can you tell something about their socioeconomic status by the car they drive, et cetera, et cetera? And as they watched people coming and going, they could not see a common demographic. It wasn't so clear to them. And so they, they seemed to be a variety and they seemed to be men and women and cars were different, et cetera. So what was it that was bringing people in to get milkshakes? And then it occurred to them to ask the question of the people who were coming and going a little bit different way. First, they started by saying, well, what, sh- what could we do to make you buy more, more milkshakes? Should we make them better flavors or um, have, have a more variety or should we put fruit in it? You know, what, what would cause you to buy more milkshakes? And, and people had different answers. So they still couldn't figure out how could we make the product better or different? What features and benefits could we add to the product that would make you come in and buy more milkshakes? And they asked this question one more way, which was sort of a different way of thinking about it is, what job did you hire the milkshake to do in your life this morning? And that's a funny way to think of it. But it was sort of, what is what are you trying to have that milkshake help you do or satisfy or accomplish in the morning? Now, for a minute, people would think about it it's sort of a strange question. What job did I hire the milkshake to do? But they came in in different lens and said, if you didn't, hire, come and get that milkshake, what else would you have decided to have this morning? 
And so they started to think about it. And they said, well, you know what? I, you know, sometimes I grab a banana on my way to work, but it's really smelly and messy. And, you know, you leave, you're done within a second and then you still have the commute into work. So I, I would have thought about a banana, but today I just wanted to treat myself to a milkshake or said, you know what? Sometimes I have a bagel, you know, but a bagel is really hard to eat as you're driving and it's messy and it's cream cheese. And so I didn't have that. Or, you know, maybe sometimes I will treat myself to a Snickers bar because a marathon in, in Ireland, a marathon bar, um, just because I can convince myself that it's healthy and it will sustain me for the day. It's got nuts in it, et cetera. And as they thought about the alternatives that people were purchasing or thinking of purchasing or thinking of bringing to, to for their morning breakfast, they realized and they talked to people about what job they were hiring that milkshake to do. It was basically to help their morning commute be more interesting. They needed something to eat. They needed to sustain themselves, but they were competing against a strange array of products, not necessarily all breakfast things or breakfast drinks, because the job that that milkshake was being hired to do was to make that boring morning commute more interesting. And a milkshake is something that works perfectly for that. You can be in the car by yourself. No one has to see that you're having a milkshake and make you feel guilty about it. It's thick enough and it will last long enough to kind of help you get through the boring parts of your commute. Um, it doesn't have all those negatives that they just talked about with the banana peels or the candy bar making you feel really guilty. You can totally convince yourself it's healthy because it has milk in it. They realized in, in that research that it wasn't that they could make the product better to get people to buy it more. It was understanding what they were hiring the product to do, milkshakes to do, was the key insight that would allow them to understand their customer more. And that's just a really big shift in how you think about customers and, and, and the products and services they want. Instead of what you want to sell them or the bells and whistles you want to add that will make it more likely for them to buy it, you have a far deeper understanding. You know, You talked about empathy. The empathy of who wants to buy a milkshake in the morning and doesn't necessarily want everyone to know about it. Uh, what are they trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish? And even with the even with the ability to go through a you know, drive through window and know it except for the cashier knows that you have it, you can leave the milkshake container in your car. It's doing something for you. You're hiring it for something that's very personal and is going to make that commute more interesting. Once you start to put on, Clay used to talk about putting on lenses to see the world differently. You, you put on the lenses of jobs to be done. You think about things incredibly differently. Uh, Bob will talk about this, I'm sure, in, in, when he talks about his research. But I like to sometimes say to people, um, in what, what world are these products competing? A bottle of wine, a tub of Ben and Jerry's, an Xbox game. Or a, a, a book, a good book. What, what are those products competing? Like in what, what possible way could they be competing? And the answer in my mind is that, that which product I will hire when I come home from a stressful day and I need to chill out. And so hiring the Pine and Jet Ben and Jerry's over the bottle of wine, that's, that is, those are competing not in any demographic, not in any market that you see and, and you know, they get compared upon. Um, with the statistics and market share, but they're competing for the job that I need to hire something to do, which is to chill me out after a stressful day. And, and that's the origin really of, of Netflix. I think Reed Hastings will talk about this is he understood that, that what, what Netflix is competing with are all those things and more that anything that, that you might choose to do to relax yourself and not necessarily competing with going out to the movie theater, because most people wouldn't go out to the movie theater on a weeknight or, or binge watch movies in a movie theater. But what Netflix is hired for is to, in my home, 
relax me and entertain me and maybe even connect me with somebody, you know, some another loved one or friend where we're watching something together. They're competing with other possible ways to do that. So the job to be done is a pretty transformative way to look at what why people want to bring you or your product or your service into their lives. It's so helpful, Karen, that for a for startups, we've a lot of startup founders listen to the show. We've a lot of people who work in design thinking and innovation labs, etc. Extremely important for them to understand the jobs to be done lens, like you say, but also on a personal level. So I've been there, I'm sure so many other of our audience have been there. Imagine the scene, you come home, my wife, we're very lucky that she looks after the children, she stays at home, and very difficult job. And I come home, I notice the kitchen's dirty, I decide I'll take it upon myself to clean up, I'll be great, I'll be, you know, and I'll do the work, etc. I'll go, no, I'll go a step further, I'll make dinner. And then I go upstairs and I'm like, ta-da, and she's not happy. And I go, what's wrong? And this is a story that you share in the book. And the person here, his name is Scott. And it's a common scene for many, many people. And not understanding jobs to be done can get can make misunderstandings like this very commonplace. I'd love you to unpack what what the heck I was talking about there. But also then maybe give us a few, a few insights from your own life, from being a partner, being a wife, being a mother, that jobs to be done experiences perhaps that you've had. So it's, it is a great story in the book because it's kind of a universal story, right? There's a, there's a wife who's been home all day and probably stressed out from the challenge of managing small kids and is pride and maybe up in, in her room having some kind of arrest when the husband comes home. Scott is someone who, who Clay knew. Um, and, and Scott comes in, superhero, thinking he's going to be super helpful. And what can I add to my add to what I give to my wife or my family at this moment? And does what, you know, he instantly sees as, you know, needing done the dishes or, or making, making dinner or whatever. And on one level, it is really nice. It's not that that wasn't a really nice thing to do. But what happens with the story we tell in the book, which I think is a common problem, is there's just a disconnect. He was offering something. Um, that he thought she should want, as opposed to understanding what she really needed from him, meaning what job did she need him to do in her life right now? And, and in the book, it's the, her job was different and simple and not one that Scott just anticipated because he hadn't even bothered to sort of check in with what she needed. When he goes upstairs, she just needed someone to listen to her and, and make her feel like an adult for a few minutes. And she had just had a day of just being, you know, run ragged by the kids and doing the chores was helpful, but that wasn't about who she was at the core. She wanted to have an adult conversation. She wanted to feel validated for a couple of minutes. She just wanted to be seen um, as, as this adult human uh, in a way that his his chores were not were not doing for her at the moment. And so he was surprised to be not, uh, she wasn't grateful of that. And I'm sure she was deep down, but perhaps, but what she needed was something else. And so the job that she needed him to do was not the one that he was offering her. And that's the kind of the thing to offering new colors and, and features on your product and service when your customer really just needs the device to work better or, you know, needs it not to drop in the middle of a call or whatever. It, it, if you don't try to understand how that person is seeing you and what they need from you, what job are they hiring you to do, um, you're going to miss. You're just going to miscommunicate about it. And again, well-intended. And I would commend the husband for doing it and say, do it later. <laughs> Still do it. Just do it later. Um, but it's a really, again, it's a very powerful question just to think through what job, you know, are these people in my life um, actually needing me to do right now? And it's seldom or 
isn't always the job you want to do for them. You know, as a, you know, as a partner, it might be easier to psychologically say, I bring home the money. So the job I've done is make provide so that life is better for you here. And again, these are good things are not bad things. But what a person fundamentally needs at this at their core is probably something different. It's what we need in relationships. And until you think about it from that perspective, and even potentially ask them, you you may be miscommunicating on something that's really powerful and, and could be really strong if you just had the perspective of what job do they need me to do in their life right now. So that would be if you're a startup and you're trying to, say, develop a product or you're a legacy company trying to adapt your product and you don't just go with sustaining innovation. So you're not like, we've an eighth blade on our Procter & Gamble uh, razor blade. Now we've nine, now we've 10 and the customer just wants one. And I thought we'd build on that and go, okay, so say you are a legacy organization, you're an established organization. One of the ways you try to drive efficiencies would be to start to outsource. And one of the huge dangers of outsourcing is that you outsource capability building. So you're not you're no longer building that muscle within the organization, you're outsourcing that muscle. And one of the really cautionary tales that you suggest in the book is the story of Dell and Asus. That what you just described is a classic efficiency innovation, right? You try to find ways to make the product more cheaply, et cetera, and or, um, you know, you find ways, and that's a common way to do it, which is you outsource some of your uh, capabilities. And so you can see ways to bring, you know, the profit margin up a little bit. And the theory of efficiency motivation is that you, uh, what the cash, the money you don't spend that you save, you reinvest in innovation. That's, that's the good idea of what efficiency innovation can do. But but a really great example of going so far into that kind of outsourcing that you actually lose something really fundamental is what we know happens to Dell computer against Asus computer. So Dell for years, again, a dominant name in, in the 90s and um, earlier, um, started to, for efficiency innovation's sake, to outsource some of its building and the parts of its uh, computers to Asus. And Asus got really good. It was a really good partner. It got to be good at you know manufacturing any of the parts and putting them together. And it became over time, little by little, what happened was Asus actually could make and did make the entire computer, the entire Dell computer. And then Dell put their name on it and marketed and branded and sold it. Um, and what what Dell learned the hard way was once Asus has all of the capabilities to make your computer. And they know how those things work together. They have knowledge that you don't have anymore. They know how to manufacture it. They know how all the parts work together. There's just, they, they, they build their own capabilities in making your computers. And eventually, Asus actually decided it didn't really need Dell anymore. It could create computers on their own. They had, they had learned and, 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 and created new possibilities when they were manufacturing the Dell computers for so long. And so the idea is that if you outsource everything, it's not just the physical that, that that they gain, you know, that they help you build or make. There's there are capabilities, meaning the way we know how to do things, knowledge that that we share in our organization, what we learn from our own experiences. Those are things that you you're outsourcing as well. And when you no longer have that in your own organization, you've just given away something far more fundamental than cheaper parts for your laptop or cheaper parts for your computer in some form. And the idea is that in our lives, the same thing can happen. If we outsource everything, 
we're giving away capabilities that we ourselves or our families can learn and grow from. And and again, the example Clay tells in the book is about parents who are so overwhelmed with life that they outsource every aspect of their sort of child's care experience, um, you know, the, the time with their children. So no, busy parents need help. They need child care. They need support. No question about it. But it's when so much or, or really the majority of your child's life is with other people that you're losing the ability to uh, to have uh, your children learn, build capabilities together that, that are part of your values and you're connecting with them in a different way. And it's just an example of how what seems to be a good thing, like outsourcing to ACES to make it more profitable, um, can take into the extreme, can outsource some really valuable things that you don't realize you're giving up. And it's, you know, influencing your children in the ways you want to influence them and letting other people kind of shape their values and shape how good they are at getting up from failure or how they respond when they're angry or, you know, things that, that are things you would like to impart on your children and help them build those capabilities. And if you outsource it all with good intentions, you lose, you lose the ability to do that. And that's a really big thing to lose. It's something I experienced firsthand, Karen, and I was so lucky that I was reading your book when I was in that role. So I worked in a legacy media company, and I set up the digital arm. And what had happened before me, there was a consultant in and he just kept outsourcing all the pieces like social media management, uh, digital sales of, you know, ads, digital ads. And I was like, kind of this is going to be the future. We need to build this in-house. We need to build this skill. We need to train all the journalists, et cetera, et cetera. And the Dell Aces story was so useful. And I learned that from Clay. And it was reinforced with how, would you, how will you measure your life? It was so, so useful. And it's one of the reasons I'm so happy to have you on the show to reinforce it again for people who may have missed it the first time around. It's a great example what you just talked about because because you then didn't, I assume, outsource all of those capabilities, right? All of the digital media and social media and all those things. You learned how to do it in-house. Do I have, do I, have I followed your story properly? Absolutely. So, so by learning to do it in house, not only did you did you keep the technical knowledge, you know, did you learn physically how to do it, but you learned all kinds of intangible things too. What works? What doesn't work? What how campaigns work? What how, what are the boundaries of of what's okay in terms of sense of humor or informality or whatever? How, all of those things that you did, you and your team, whoever whoever learned those skills in house, you didn't just learn how to do things, but you learned why and and what works and 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 how to affect things differently and how to use those two tools differently. Those are capabilities that you would never have gotten just by outsourcing and having competent people give you back exactly whatever you needed. That's a that's a really great example of how to how to be very careful to not give away the ability to learn and grow the capabilities. I was going to link this because it's a lovely segue to the chapter eight, which is the right stuff chapter. And the whole idea here is I thought about our audience. So many of our audience are change makers like yourself. and the path to being a change maker is nonlinear. And it's not measured in job spec. It's not measured in CV. Oftentimes, it looks like there's a step backwards or a moment of pause in a career. But oftentimes, somebody might go and start up their own startup idea, they might try something. And one of the big lessons you share in this chapter is well, there is gold in that, that, that scar tissue of experience versus just the theory are entirely different. And one of the things that may not be known about Clay, for example, 
is that he wasn't just an academic. He had his own business. He'd also worked in in um, as a missionary. He had done extremely different things that come together and create these beautiful lenses. And with those lenses all mixed together, you see the world entirely differently then. It's a really great way to think about it because it, the right stuff that you mentioned in the beginning is uh, language from a Tom Wolfe book where he was chronicling who got picked for the um, pilot program, the NASA pilot program. And the, the idea was that, or astronauts, astronauts eventually, the idea was that there were certain people who just, you know, were, just had the perfect resume, had the right, absolutely right inherent skills. They just were naturals. They were innately ready for something. And they, they had the right stuff to do the job. And, and the idea is that sometimes we think we're looking for, that's what we either we look for when we hire people, a perfect resume. You know, in America, it's often an Ivy League education and work for a couple of big brand names. That's the right stuff. That's what we want. But we don't think enough about what experiences do we want, both to build in ourselves and for the people that we hire. And the experiences, we call it the schools of experience, in the book um, can be as or more valuable than than some supposedly impeccable credentials that you're supposed to have um, and experiences like you just talked about with Clay, having having had the experience of going into another country, having to learn the language, to speak it well enough to connect with other people on a really fundamental level in his missionary work, that is a, that's a profound experience. And that's not an experience that you can get working in a big company, you know, in some in some corporate job that that's one about understanding and connecting how to connect to human beings on uh, it, with their language. That's that's an empathetic experience. That's an experience he had. He was the, the CEO of a high tech company, the experience of understanding how not just the product, you know, has to be great, but the experience of working for the company has to be great. Um, that's a really powerful experience that is not something you can easily replicate, you know, by again, having some kind of perfect credentials. It's not the, the title of CEO, but it's the experiences of being CEO. And then eventually the experience of being an academic where his ultimate role and the one I think he loved most was to be a teacher. He was a natural teacher. And so perhaps those two experiences before that had prepared him well for that, having to be empathetic, you know, in a completely different culture and having to be responsible for the happiness and productivity and, and the, 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 the dynamic of a company culture. Um, that helped build him into a magnificent teacher. And this is true for all of us. You know, we, 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 we should be looking to develop the experiences that we need to get where we want to go and that will shape us. And leveraging the experiences, as you said, the scar tissue, um, because those things you learn, you do learn from those things. And those are valuable in other settings too. So having had failures or having done a startup on a shoestring budget, that that's an experience that can be that can be valuable in other contexts too. And if you see it that way, that's a good way to talk about how and why you bring skills to a job or how and why you're looking for skills from someone else in a way that's not simply about the kind of credentials on, on your resume. And I think the schools of experience thinking is really important for all of us in, in, in our professional lives and even in our personal lives. Think about it as a parent. What experiences do you want your kid to have um, to help them grow into the person that they want to be? And that's important too, that we don't uh, just jump into solving every problem for our kids, that we allow them to have the experiences that will shape who they grow into 
rather than just helping to make their resume perfect, you know, that they that they have all the right activities uh, on their on their you know childhood roster of what they do, or they get into the right schools and all those things. Those are valuable, but they're not as valuable as having the right experiences that shape their character. Karen, we'll finish up with the idea of full versus marginal thinking and the poster child, I suppose, of disruption, which is the story of Blockbuster, which I think is a bit of a tragedy, really, because they had all the ingredients at their disposal little bit of circumstance with the recession with activist investor coming in but one of the flaws in thinking was the idea of full versus marginal thinking i'd love you to take us through this both what that means that lens through which to see an experience but also then the case study of blockbuster through that lens sure so let me just start by sort of establishing the blockbuster story through this lens a little bit so if we go into the wayback machine uh, most of us, certainly in America, and I'm guessing there too, there was a blockbuster in almost every town that I know of. Everybody, it was a little store front someplace. You would go in on a Friday night and look for what were you going to uh, have for your entertainment for the weekend. And you'd walk around and you'd pick out two or three videos and you hope you got one that you liked. And then uh, you would play it over the weekend and Blockbuster charged you for membership. But if you got it back on time on you know Monday morning, whatever it was due, it was kind of a good deal. Blockbuster, uh, in reality, wanted you to forget that you had those videos in your car or sitting by your couch or kicked under under a sofa or something, because Blockbuster did very well when you forgot to return those videos because of the late fees you'd pay. So it was a ritual most of us were used to. We would go looking around for something. It was part of our evening's entertainment. Uh, go pick a Blockbuster video for the weekend and then hopefully get it back on time. As Blockbuster was just dominating all over the place, it was very, very profitable because of so many of us forgot to return our videos on time. And they really had no incentive to even remind you that the video had been returned on time because you'd maybe rent it. I can't remember the fees, but let's say you rented it for you know $5 for the weekend, but the fees would be a dollar a day or something. So you, they could double what they got out of you if you forgot to return it You know, every day. It was in their interest for you to keep the video. They didn't care if you returned it. They didn't want you to return it. They wanted you to pay them more money. So Blockbuster had a very profitable formula and most of us accepted that. We lived with it. It was imperfect, but we wanted to have that Friday night entertainment. And it was convenient. It was in our you know, hometown. We could get onto the store. At, at a certain point, Blockbuster was cruising along with the success. It's the incumbent, as we say, the established giant in the industry. And there was a little known upstart called Netflix, which initially was uh, doing a mail order CD or DVD, DVD business. And so what it would be, my parents were early Netflix people because they didn't want to go to the, the, the Blockbuster, get out of their car, get out of their house and go look around and walk around. You could order online whatever DVDs you wanted for movies and uh, Netflix would send them to you. And they didn't care how long you kept them. They just, you, you paid for the, the monthly fee. So they just wanted you to kind of keep using Netflix and being happy with your membership. Um, and so you, you could get a DVD and keep it as long as you wanted. And I think original rules were you couldn't get another one or another certain ones until you return it, but there was no pressure on you. So Netflix was, was a kind of good enough product that was different than, than Blockbuster, which was dominant everywhere. And at one of the annual meetings, I remember the uh, the company was asked, you know, what are you going to do about this Netflix, this little this little upstart that's sort of starting to eat into your home business? And the answer was, it would not be in our interest. It would not be profitable for us to try to compete with ourselves by having some kind of a mail order DVD business. So they 
didn't want to even contemplate it. We're doing very well as we are. Why would we even, you know, give them value, you know, recognizing them as a competitor? So they just ignored it. They, the, the co- they thought the cost of potentially creating a new division in Blockbuster that mail, did mail or DVDs to compete with this little upstart was going to just take away from their profitability. So in their minds, they were making the decision about that immediate decision. Should we compete with this little thing called Netflix? And as you know, the rest is the rest of the story is history. You know, this little Netflix thing actually, in our opinion, got the job to be done far better and started sucking customers away. And they created a better product and service. People hired Netflix because they didn't want to have to go walk around the blockbuster for ages, hoping they'd find a video. They didn't want the late fees. They wanted to be easily entertained in their home. Netflix figured that out. Blockbuster was so worried about doing something that would affect its profitability that they didn't even see it as competition. So they made a decision based on the immediate thoughts of how much would it cost for them to compete with Netflix rather than the real long-term costs of competing with Netflix. And the the end of the story is Blockbuster went bankrupt. I think there's literally one Blockbuster storefront someplace in America. I don't know if it's an independent. I think there's one place in Texas you can still go to to, uh, Blockbuster. And most of us now have a increasingly pricey Netflix uh, subscription that we pay every month and we were incredibly grateful to have during the pandemic. So that's a great example of disruption. Netflix disrupted Blockbuster, but it's also a great example of what we call marginal thinking. Blockbuster made the decision not to compete with Netflix because in that short-term interest, what they saw the consequence of making the decision to to create a division that would create mail order DVDs, they saw the the profitability going down a little bit or, you know, some distraction in their company to sort of have this competing product. So the short-term costs they thought were not worth it. It was not worth doing that because it would in some ways disrupt their, their path to profitability. But the long-term costs were very, very significant. They didn't think about the long-term consequences of not mounting a competition to this new competitor. And the long-term consequences were everything. Blockbuster's gone. So that's an example of marginal thinking, and companies do it all the time. They make decisions based on what they see as just the immediate consequences of the decision, rather than factoring in the long-term. How does this play out over the long-term? What is this one choice begin to lead you to and what's the long-term consequence of that and that's a mistake because you're making decisions it's myopic you're only making decisions based on what's happening right now but not where it may lead and that's a mistake a strategic mistake that a lot of companies do make it's such a great lesson and it's one of the reasons i do this show karen is that many people just don't know about these things they don't read as extensively as some people and they don't know about these theories they don't know that everything faces these problems eventually everything gets to a point of stagnation and decline and one of the ways i I thought about this was actually personal experience again same company where we were trying to develop some new ideas some new products the first thing the cfo asks is when will it be profitable the second thing then is like, oh, wh- who in the existing company can we use to stuff this into their job instead of going and hiring new people? And that's something that consistently comes up is, again, it's kind of like the sunk cost. We've done all this stuff already. How can we maximize everything else we have? I'd love you to maybe expand on that as a final thought for our audience. So that is a great example, too, actually. And, and Clay's classic sort of guidance for not being disrupted is to disrupt yourself, is to be willing to um, invest in things that will in some way potentially 
disrupt what you're doing now, but invest in it really. You know, don't just add it into someone else's job, but create a team that's going to focus on this thing. You decide that that investment is worth it in the long run, right? The marginal thinking is how do we have whatever whatever we're trying to do now, not add anything to our, you know, keep our bottom line where it is, not add anything to our expen- our fixed costs. Um, and that is a sensible financial decision in the short term, but it may be a terrible decision in the long term because then you don't ever create the right product or service. You're always having distracted staff trying to do two first, you know, to get two things out of one. There are, you know, some, some ex- famous examples of car, of a car company uh, that had a really successful sort of spin-off brand and then little by little, they started to try to, um, you know, let, oh, you know, would it be better if we had our accounting guys back at headquarters, you know, add it to their roster, or we 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 made sure that, you know, we, we use the parts from other things. They just they just couldn't see their way to truly investing in that new product or service, that new car, um, and that's same with your company. And when you don't do that, you've done you've made marginal thinking at, at work, and it can just it can, it can mean you're not going to be successful because you start down a path that you don't mean to start down, and you end up far away from what your original goal was in your company. The goal was to create a new product or service, but they didn't really want to invest in it. And if you don't invest in it, you really, it's just the chances of succeeding are actually are not going to be very good. And it goes back to, again, what you talked about earlier on to us as individuals, we do this ourselves. We don't invest in ourselves. We don't continually add new capabilities. We, we look to go, well, what will I lose if I do that? And maybe I try out a new career or take on a new stretch target etc it's the way we think unfortunately karen we've we've come to the end of the book there's a a final piece on purpose that i will leave to our audience to check out because it, it it involves some deep work and some homework for you yourself and i i still highly recommend this book so so much it's a magnificent book so thought provoking and it gives it gives a great overview of many of the theories that clayton introduced throughout all his work I thought I'd leave the final word to you. What would be your final message for audience? Maybe a final word on Clay as well and the impact that he's left on your life. So, I mean, there's so much I could say about Clay because he really did change. He truly changed my life by offering these ideas. It sounds crazy, but to have these tools, these theories, to think about your your own life differently through the lens of what will cause what to happen, that that was a profound change for me. And the, the fundamental question that we ask in the book and we asked in our original article and he asked that day when I was in his office way back when we first started this was, how will you measure your life? And it's a question most people don't think about. And there's, it's a question that there are only personal answers to. My answer may be different than yours, but I do know for sure, and it was what caused me to make the changes in my own life, and, and, and this is what the gift that Clay gave me. If I don't begin to try to have my own answer for that question, if I don't know what I think will matter, what I will measure on my own life, uh, I'll never get there. I will never be, a, I will just be sailing around aimlessly and trying to do, be a good person, but you know, having no direction. So I think taking the time to ask yourself and maybe taking some time to answer it. And again, it's deeply personal, but that's a gift because once you begin to have an answer to that question yourself, it's going to be a really powerful tool to helping you make the right choices in your life, deciding what trade-offs you will and won't make and what you're trying to achieve, where you're trying to go with your life. So, so it's a gift to be able to have an answer and it's hard to have an answer, but I, I commend you to do it because for me, it was totally life-changing to be able to ask and then answer that question. Beautiful, Karen. And for people who want to find out more about you, because you are an author in your own right, you're also working on some other projects. And for people to be able to follow you, hear about your updates, etc. Where can they find you? 
So I enjoy connecting with people on LinkedIn. I really like having conversations there. And I also have the website, karendillon.net. Um, and I'd be happy to connect with people there and you can keep up with whatever the, whatever I'm working on there as well. I'm going to claim you as one of our own Irish there. You, you also knew that we used to call it Marathon, not Snickers. It's Snickers, by the way, now. They've, uh, they've, they've washed, it, it, to, for advertising perspective, they've made it Snickers. It is, in fact, an Irish name. I am Irish, so you got it right. Awesome, awesome. See, us Irish, we're everywhere. We're everywhere spreading the good word. And I want to thank you, Karen, for your commitment to this project as well. I'm I'm really, really grateful. It's been an absolute honor. Everything people say about you is true, which is you're a lovely person and a, and a pleasure to work with. And there's a great saying that what true what's true about character is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And what they say about you when you're not in the room is all good things. And I want to thank you sincerely, Karen Dillon, author of How Would You Measure Your Life? Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. It's been a real pleasure to have this conversation with you.